The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning, everyone. I'm Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, which you're in, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. Uh, and I'm so disappointed, my apologies, because of COVID regulations, uh, I'm not able to be with you in person this morning, but I'm, I'm like Kieran, absolutely delighted to welcome you all to the hub for the Cecils in Ireland conference today. This is a very special event for us. Uh, it's, uh, first of all, I think a rare occasion when we have the descendants of the main subject of a conference with us. And I want to extend a very warm welcome to Lord Robert Salisbury, to Lady Hannah Salisbury, uh, and also extend a welcome to Lord Charles Cecil. Uh, the Hub is very pleased to be uh, running this conference, as Kieran has mentioned, in association with the Lord Burley 500 Foundation. And I want to thank the Foundation for all the help they've given us and, and uh, enabling this conference to take place. In particular, I want to thank Lady Duff Gordon, who, as I think many of you know, is a Trinity graduate, so we're welcoming her back, uh, and who's been working very closely with Trinity's, my colleagues in Trinity, uh, Kieran Brady, Professor Emeritus from uh, the School of History, my colleague, Kieran O'Neill, who is with you today, uh, who is Deputy Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, and also Sinead Pentany from the Trinity Development and alumni, but it is Evie, you who have been the driving force behind getting this conference together. And uh, we do appreciate your enthusiasm and your commitment. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome the other members of the Lord Burley 500 Foundation to the conference and to welcome all the guests who've traveled to Dublin today to be with us. You're most welcome. Uh, I am, uh, of course, uh, I don't need to uh, make this audience aware that uh, William Cecil, the first Baron Burley, was the first Chancellor of Trinity. So the conference is of particular interest to the Trinity community. Um, and uh, it's a kind of uh, homecoming for Burley in that respect. I'm going to hand back in a second to Kieran Brady uh, and to wish you all a good morning. But before I do that, I believe and I hope that Lord Salisbury will say a few words to us. Thank you, everyone. Well, thank you so much for that very charming welcome. It's delightful to be back in Dublin as always. I do have uh, some uh, quite close Irish connections and that my mother's family comes from uh, County Limerick. So Ireland has always been part of uh, my life. And it's a very great pleasure to be back here as chairman or co-chairman of the Lord Burley 500 Foundation with my very distant cousin, Miranda Rock of, of Burley House. Uh, and um, if I may just say, uh, Karen, a quick word about the foundation itself. We are holding and have held, in spite of the best efforts of COVID to defeat us, some um, a, a series of events designed to celebrate and commemorate the birth of the old boy himself in uh, 
1528, some people say 1521, um, the document on which we base this, um, actually he gives both dates. Uh, so uh, although he couldn't anticipate that COVID was going to last for more uh, than a year, uh, even he got that wrong. He did at least in his best and most habitual terms cover himself uh, on both eventualities. Uh, and, but we do have, apart from commemorating and celebrating, depending on your point of view, uh, Burley's birth, uh, we also hope that out of uh, the last, uh, the events of the last 18 months or so, that we will have a number of enduring uh, um, uh, programmes which will constitute something of a legacy. Uh, the, um, uh, this will be based principally I think on educational programs, uh, particularly in, uh, in partnership with uh, Burley's Old College of Cambridge, St. John's, with whom we still have very close links. In fact, they continue to send us a preacher every year, which they've done since 1583. And in fact, we welcomed <laughs> the, um, the Burley preacher uh, just over a month ago for the 2021 Burley sermon, uh, which is always begins with uh, a resonating bidding prayer with great rolling periods. Uh, but we hope that uh, it may be possible in, in view of the enthusiasm and charm with which we've been received here to be able to uh, associate uh, uh, Trinity uh, College Dublin with whatever emerges from the events of the last 18 months, and I hope that uh, we will be able to build on that as, as time goes on. I think my first task really is to thank those who've made this event possible and to add our gratitude uh, to all of you. To, to, to Trinity College Dublin itself, of course, uh, to Eve Patton and, and the Long Room Hub for their welcome and allowing us to use this wonderful facility today, but there are a number of others uh, without whom this would have been impossible. Uh, Sinead Pantori has been working on this. I know, I don't know where she is Sinead, but um, there you are, uh, for up to two years on and off, I think, uh, in spite of the best efforts of, of COVID. So a big thank you to you. Uh, of course, to you, Kieran, um, one of the most, as I'm well aware, one of the most eminent workers in this particular vineyard. I greatly look forward to what I'm sure will be a highly nuanced view of Berlin when you come to come to talk uh, in a minute. But uh, he, his enthusiasm and drive has been absolutely essential to bringing this project to fruition. To all the speakers, of course, uh, who are taking part and who, some of whom I understand have traveled a long way. And of course, all of you for attending and eventually for taking part. But above all, I think I'd like to say a big thank you to Evie Duff Gordon. Uh, she's a member of our steering group. She has been absolutely adamant that this will take place. And uh, without you, Evie, it would have been quite impossible. Thank you very, very much for all your enthusiasm and for keeping us up to date on this. I'd like to add one other thing before I sit down, and I'm well aware we're running late. Um, and I, I'm equally aware that what I'm about to say may seem a bit obvious and a bit trite, but in spite of that, I think there may be a certain element of truth in it. Um, uh, there's, uh, and I'm saying it really conscious that uh, we're very fortunate in having two 
representatives of the British Embassy here today. We're delighted to see them um, because they are, of course, one of the principal agents for um, developing the relationships between Ireland and the rest of these islands. So we know, I need hardly tell this audience, they've always been fraught with emotion and violence. And we have, and I think we will continue to have, um, uh, in spite of whatever our feelings there may be on either side, uh, we will have, simply because of geography, inevitably the opportunity to influence each other, either for the worse or more constructively for the better. As we know, my distinguished ancestor took an interest in Ireland, just as he did in just about everything else that crossed his desk. Uh, and I think that uh, it's very easy to try and categorize the various elements of what he did and what interested him into sort of silos. But of course, as I think many once said, everything is connected to everything else. And uh, I think it's extraordinarily important that something as consequential for Burley as Ireland uh, should be seen in a broader context from just one particular category. Um, and um, he took an interest in Ireland uh, because it was of such enormous importance to him and to the government of England. And if anything, the chancellorship of this great institution is, as, as Eve just said, uh, the fact that he was the first chancellor of this great institution is I think evidence of that in itself. We know that uh, geography cannot be altered. And if we are to learn to live together constructively in these islands, I do think that any effort to understand our joint history better will be part of that process and an important one. So I do hope that quite apart from the inherent historical interest and the joy of great scholars talking to each other, and I hope arguing agreeably with each other, that today's proceedings will make a small but significant contribution to the constructive relationship between the inhabitants of these islands. So thank you all so much for your hospitality. I greatly look forward to the next several hours. Thank you. Thank you. It's not that long ago uh, when the idea of a conference on the settles in Ireland would have been regarded as impossible. Uh, what is there to talk about? Uh, if you look at the um, 19th and early 20th century studies, uh, both of William Cecil, Lord Burley, and Robert Cecil, Salisbury, um, hardly any mention of Ireland at all. And, and even in Conyers Reeves, two volumes on uh, Cecil Burley, uh, Ireland appears only fleetingly and irritatingly, like a kind of blue bottle on the window that is sort of getting in the way of the more important things that need to be talked about. Now, in part, in part that has to do uh, with the quickest of 19th century and early 20th century British history writing, British historiography, 
where as famously the Oxford history of England is about England uh, rather than about the other bits and pieces that hang on on the other side of it. Uh, but in part also, and Lord Salisbury has alluded to this, I think it's a very important point. It has to do with a kind of um, artificial recategorization that took place in the 19th century in the reorganization of the British archive, uh, when the public correspondence, we call the state papers, the public um, letters of exchanges um, that occur all through the 16th century, were divided uh, into state papers domestic, state papers foreign, state papers Spanish, state papers Venetian, and eventually, oh God, state papers Ireland. <laughs> But that wasn't the way it was at all. I mean, one of the, I think the most insightful things that Lord Salisbury just said is Cecil's desk. What was coming into the desk? And he wasn't dividing, nor was Salisbury, dividing into state papers domestic, state papers foreign, state papers, oh God, Ireland, okay. No, it all happened at the same time. And one of the, the great um, developments in the historiography of this archipelago that has taken place in the last 20 years or so, is the reconstruction of that intricate relationship. And we've had scholars from England, like Stephen Alfred, scholars from um, Scotland, like Jane Dawson um, and others, um, Jenny Wormald, deserves mention, um, and in Ireland, uh, who've actually tried not simply to deconstruct, but to reconstruct what it was to be in, I was going to say in charge, but in responsibility for all of these things that are taking place. And, and one of um, William Cecil's remarkable achievements is that he kept all those balls in the air most of the time, but not all of the time. Uh, he had his priorities, and his priorities were, as the 19th century historians were, even though they didn't think about it all that much, right to discern, his priorities were English. They weren't Scottish, they weren't foreign in that order, and they weren't Irish. And, and throughout, I think we will see today, the degree to which priorities about what is good for the English state, for the English crown, dominated over all terms. Let me, let me just finish with, with two things. Let me give you one example of it from the early 1560s, uh, before Cecil had established his dominance, uh, which he did after 1570, uh, when he was involved in intricate negotiations with the Earl of Argyle, with Archibald Campbell, uh, um, concerning how are we going to handle our relationships with Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, and Campbell really intricate with this. And Campbell hated the Irish dominant Ulster figure, Shane O'Neill. And Shane wanted to be recognized as an English earl. Really wanted to have that title, but Argyle didn't want that to happen. And the way in which Cecil responded to this was, as all good politicians do, and I'm sure there are lots of good politicians in this room know the answer to this, he did nothing at all. He let the hair sit. 
and so negotiation was dragged on and dragged on until really there was no resolution and O'Neill never got his earldom. And Campbell, our guide, wrote to Cecil saying, thank you so much for this. I know that you would have rather gelded yourself than to give in to that monster man. That's one example of decisions by silence, decisions by indecision. The other is a much later one, and I know there are people who will be talking about this uh, later, and I certainly don't want to anticipate that. It's at a crucial time in the late 1580s, we're talking on that time here, uh, when in Burley, as he was then, Burley's table, Burley's desk, crucial thing, and I want that to be one of the most important things to come out of this conference, what was on his desk. Well, on Burley's desk, there was awful lot of things going on, but there were several important things going on in Ireland, uh, in particular, the intense activities of the Viceroy, Sir John Perrot, who wanted not only to establish a university, this one didn't happen, uh, in the 1580s, but also to establish foundations for the relationship between the Irish nobility, the Irish gentry, and the English crown. And the Armada got in the way. And bad talk about Perrot got in the way. And the pressure mounted on Burnley. What are you going to do about it? You know what he did? Yeah, nothing. The best way in Anglo-Irish relations has for so often been, when in trouble, do nothing about it. At all. I hope we will take that kind of dark lesson away from us. We need to do things, not to do nothing. I have said enough, and my, my pleasure now is to introduce the first of our two speakers in the session, and, and that is um, Dr. Alan Kelly, recent PhD graduate from Trinity, uh, who has is the author of one of the most innovative, broadly uh, perceived CSAs. Uh, on Anglo-Irish relations in the late 15th and early 16th century. Not only thinks about state papers, domestic, foreign, Venetian, Ireland, uh, but about how these things are represented visually uh, and artistically. Uh, And I hope Alan is going to provide us with a a starting new perspective on the question of Anglo-Irish relations in the early modern period. Thank you. Great. So, um, what had essentially become the norm of aristocratic delegation in late medieval Ireland was the preferred, if not default, policy of an indifferent secretary, serving a king whose priorities lay elsewhere. The Lordship of Ireland, with its distinctive marches and power structures that interlinked with the Irishry, came to be inclined towards crown administration under an ascendant old colonial magnate. The expediency of such an approach is most apparent with regard to the ascendancy of the Kildare Geraldines, but also the Desmond Fitzgeralds of the 1460s and earlier still, Lancastrian delegation to James Butler, the White Earl of Ormond. Since the early Plantagenets, the King's secretary or clerk existed in a formal but not always clearly defined role, and the office wielded varying degrees of political 
sparing the listener an analysis of central administrative organs of government, the office of the Secretary of State, as it came to be characterized by Cecil Fine's precedence in Thomas Cromwell and his management of an expanding Tudor bureaucracy. The extent to which the King's Secretary held sway over matters concerning Ireland is difficult to ascertain. Until compelled to react in times of crisis, the King's Chief Counsel rarely expressed an interest in Ireland. It was not until Henry VIII's omnipotent ministers, Wolsey and Cromwell, that a Crown Secretary cultivated patronage in the Lordship of Ireland. Cromwell, after failed attempts to entice the House of Kildare into due process, eventually found himself seeking a framework to replace the established order with direct Crown rule. And this was no simple task, given the trauma of 1534 in particular and the upheaval of the period in general. Little inspiration was to be found in the various abortive campaigns of previous centuries, if indeed Cromwell was of a mind to thoroughly seek instruction from antecedent events. Although his correspondence with Piers Butler, Earl of Ossery, for instance, uh, indicates that he was in fact inundated with current, if highly polemic, information. Intelligence, knowledge, or as contemporaries wrote, the experience of the land fluctuated with monarchial and dynastic change, prompting, for example, according to McGinn and Ellis, a rediscovery of Ireland under Henry Tudor. So over a century before Cromwell's remembrances, 1834-5, considered the course of conquest or reformation James Butler fought Earl Bormond on seeing his hold of the governorship and position as leading magnate under threat, urged Lord Protector Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester to intervene. In doing so, a military campaign to subdue native lords was explicitly inspired by Le Livre Cambrensis, the colonists' cherished chronicle of the 12th century conquest. Fast forward a century, Cromwell's binary terms here can be misleading, as military conquest may carry diplomatic overtures, while reformation vaguely encompassed a range of measures from conciliar to coercive. David Edwards has argued that early to mid-Tudor policy was characterized by a threatened force which preceded reform. And indeed, treatises and policy papers initially submitted to the secretaries of Henry VIII advocated a punitive approach to varying degrees. As David Heffernan has explored in great detail, it is important that among the earliest Tudor accounts are military records. And simply put, Crown military intervention tended to cut across the broad pan-cultural power base of a ruling magnate. A King's Council would also have recognized that the Irish forays of Richard II, Sir John Tiptop, Lord Grey of Rutten, and Edward Poynings tended to prove either cripplingly expensive or ultimately futile. Lancastrian and Yorkist councillors were readily accustomed to facilitating government through the old colonial elite. And to illustrate, um, indentures between Edward IV um, to Secretary Oliver King, whose tenure marked the rising political importance of the office, and Richard III, 
The secretary, John Kendall, with Kildare in 1479 and 1483, respectively, broadly reflect the Crown's limitations in dealing with the nobility. In 1483, an expansive Geraldine mandate was negotiated through Richard III's councillors, including Secretary John Kendall, who had replaced Oliver King. The value of continuity, having respect as well to the ease of these times as to other precedents past afore, for example, a quote, is emphasized while acknowledging the Earl of Kildare's, quote, good fame and noble disposition. With sudden regime change, Edward's secretary, Oliver King, was replaced, disrupting intelligence, which perhaps explains an unusual error where Kildare was referred to by the late Earl, Thomas Fitzgerald, seventh Earl of Kildare, who had been dead for six years. Richard's, pri <laughs> Richard's priorities and those of Kendall and his council lay elsewhere, but Irish affairs would trouble the realm by the, again by the, the decade. Transcending dynastic allegiances, Edward IV's secretary, Oliver King, was returned to office by Henry Tudor and served from 1487 under the influence of Richard Epson, Edmund Dudley, John Morton, and Richard Fox. In 1486, Fox, as secretary to Henry VII, conveyed the king's inclination to retain Kildare as Lord Deputy, and with John Martin also specified terms for the Earl's submission to Edgecombe after his failed Yorkist coup d'etat in 1487. Poining subjugation of the Irish Parliament in 1496 was designed to curb the power of the deputy and did not represent a departure in terms of policy. In 1506, Empson or Dudley preserved a correspondence noting Henry VII's consideration of a voyage personnel in his most noble person, which did not materialize, yet its proposed aim to reduce the wild Irish signified reservations as to the imperfect pan-cultural character of governments through the local nobility. Under Henry VIII, Lord Chancellor Woolsey, a protege of Fox and Wyrm, expanded a diplomatic network inherited from his predecessors. Now we've emerged from the ticket of the late medieval uh, 15th century and into more recognizable territory here. I can slow the pace down perhaps and focus on connections that might uh, link with um, later speakers and later content. Um, so although Ireland was a low priority, Woolsey made calculated appointees in the Lordship namely bishops John Kite, Hewing, and later John Allen, who supplied the Cardinal with intelligence and policy papers, their content at times sophisticated and humans. Here was a distant precursor to Cecil. Lord uh, uh, Ceres, Lord Lieutenancy in 1519 was an abrupt interruption of aristocratic governance. It yielded little tangible gain, but in 1520, Wolsey established a Privy Council in Dublin. Now, even a failed venture was apparently of some consolation to certain influential palesmen and butler followers who called for the regional conquest of Leinster. But Surrey's campaign underlined how policy would be constrained by the limits of military expenditure. And this reality was appreciated by the cardinal himself. 
It was through the aforementioned diverse group of Geraldine entities that Woolsey and his uh, secretaries, Thomas Ruckel, Richard Pace, and William Knight, acquired a large corpus of Irish policy papers. And despite their polemic import, some precedence was given to this body of memoranda, which grew exponentially in the ensuing decade as the deputyship in the 1520s alternated with alarming inconsistency. Yet the Lordship remained of marginal relevance, although Thomas Cromwell, whose unlikely emergence in the wake of the Cardinal's fall sought to induce Kildare and Ossery through legal reform to reduce their reliance on Irish extortions, uh, simplicity uh, find as a uh, coin and library. Like Woolsey, he developed a system of patronage and informants in Ireland. Formally appointed to the King's, uh, the King's principal secretary in 1534, Cromwell was then immediately and most unexpectedly confronted with Irish problems in the form of full-scale rebellion. Political reconstruction was required following the destruction of the House of Kildare, which in turn was to accompany religious changes in line with the King's supremacy. Cromwell oversaw a fundamental shift in what had been an effectively self-reliant polity administered by the aristocracy to a lordship governed by a local executive under a deputy of English birth reporting directly to the crown. He envisaged a lordship which would generate its own revenue supported by a professional bureaucracy and a permanent military garrison. Cromwell's confidant, Lord Deputy Lord Leonard Grey, struggled with ongoing conflict after the rebellion, and he was also hindered by the ubiquitous problem of insufficient resources. A series of temporary arrangements with individual lords had been sanctioned, but while Cromwellian reform after 1534 marked the first meaningful change in policy, it nevertheless lacked solid constitutional focus. It was under Thomas Cromwell's successor, Thomas Risley, that a governor was empowered to adopt the landmark constitutional elevation of Ireland from a lordship to a kingdom in its own right. The extent to which Risley pushed for the so-called act for the kingly title is uncertain. In the apt words of Lord Deputy St. Ledger, they both understood that in a land where gains were more, more easily won than kept, such innovation was necessary. The act was not, however, an initiative of Risley, but rather conceived and drafted within Ireland by the Lords of the Inner Pale. The secretary likely ensured that the bill was given primacy when presented to the English Council. Through establishing the political unity of all the inhabitants of Ireland as subjects under unilateral jurisdiction of the Crown, the colony was also redefined in the Act's long preamble to undercut the 12th century papal mandate for the Cambro-Norman conquest. Contemporaries were well-versed in the matter uh, through the chronicles of Geraldus Cambrensis. What followed in the early 1540s was another new departure. The creation of Gaelic peers as part of a tenurial jurisdictional and religious overhaul, the scheme known, later known as surrender and regrant, was built on Ireland, was built on Ireland's new constitutional <coughs> status. Risley facilitated reform, for example, working closely with the King on drafts for supplementary legislation for absentees. But by 1545, 
he was conscious of St. Ledger's emerging opponents. Central government had destabilized with the fall of Cromwell, but, with, but, but the death of the king in 1547 threw the government into upheaval. Risley was succeeded by Sir William Peter in what was uh, the distinctly evangelical court of Edward VI. Under the hardline protectorate of Somerset and Northumberland, Peter managed the replacement of St. Ledger with Bellingham, and the new deputy effectively enforced religious change with Archbishop George Brown. The jurisdictional and bureaucratic growth of the Tudor state from the late 1530s led to the formal expansion of the Secretariat. William Cecil had been in receipt of policy papers prior to his elevation as junior to Peter. And by 1551, along with appointments to the Edwardian <coughs> Privy Council, he had been briefed by the Lord Deputy with complaints disconcertingly similar to those of Gray over a decade earlier. Peter was disposed to oversee the continued fortification of the land west of the Pale, not focused on South Leinster as had been petitioned, and the martial ventures of Bellingham and Croft. Acts of uniformity and the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer were also priorities for Peter. The reliance on new English blood did not exclude the aristocracy. On the contrary, the, the support of the nobility was instrumental, but the vision and rivalry posed problems. Two years before the restoration of Gerald Fitzgerald, the 11th Earl of Kildare, Cecil engaged with Lord Garrett at court in 1552 to the predictable alarm of anti-Geraldines. The inconsistent and underfinanced approaches exasperated local, local and regional divisions while amplifying external threats. Under Mary Tudor, Peter oversaw the campaigns of Sussex, who, uh, according to alarmist warnings from one courtier, was with a thousand men to conquer Totam Hibernae. <laughs> this followed hard upon the landmark parliament of 1557, where religious authority was reverted to Rome and preparations were underway for plantation in the heavily garrisoned kings and queens counties. With Mary's death a year later, the course of Irish policy again lay at a precarious juncture and once more was prone to sudden shifts, both externally and at court. Having long been an issue of contention, the subject of dialogue, which increased in both volume and sophistication since the turn of the 16th century, to, uh, to Crown Council, Ireland vaguely remained of marginal relevance. Successive secretaries tended to view the Lordship of Ireland as an elusive, corrupted feudal anachronism, or in time, the land as a problematic, insolvent polity. Recent research has deepened insights on the accumulation of information and its impact on policy formation over the course of the century, notably David Heffernan, Christopher McGinn, Stephen Ellis, and Kieran Brady, which perhaps are best understood in the broad context of Elizabethan circumstances. Among the constitutional and administrative consequences from the 1530s and 1540s was an expanding secretariat whose principal figure did not necessarily devote greater attention to or interest in Irish policy. Considering prior knowledge of Ireland, 
Rangers. It was Woolsey, but more so Cromwell, who were the first to form a meaningful, albeit unsustained, approach. The turning points, the traditional turning points of 1534 and 1541 marked instances when intervention was demanded, yet strategies remained inconsistent. And as for how or when policy became committedly punitive, or for a Secretary of State to persistently endeavour in Irish affairs, one must look towards William Cecil. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Alan covered an enormous amount of ground here, and I'm sure it provoked uh, loads of questions, but I'll be asking you to keep those questions in mind uh, for the end of our session, because what I want to do now is, is move um, directly uh, to, as it were, the, the settled part of the settled conference where, with uh, David Hecker. And David is uh, one of the enviably productive um, figures of the new generation of early modern <coughs> historians. Uh, I would waste all of our time, I would take it all off simply by listing what David has published uh, even in the last five, ten years, except to say this, um, what, one of the signal achievements of David's work has been to actually bring to like, the underlying thoughts and assumptions of English thinking about Ireland uh, in the later 16th century, both by the publication, this is very important, of primary materials on reform treatises and memoranda and the like, and also by the hugely informative and illuminating discussions as to what was going on in Elizabethan thinking about Ireland, and in particular, going on and settled tonight. So give over to you guys. Sorry now, I will make this actually uh, work in a moment. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you. Okay. So basically this will pick up from where Alan um, kind of finished in terms of the Henrician and the mid-Tudor secretaries and how they actually began to conceive policy in the 1530s, the 1540s and the 1550s. So of all the figures who were engaged in English policy for Ireland during the reign of Elizabeth I, William Cecil, Lord Burley, has a claim to be the most significant figure of the entire reign. So, perhaps in some ways actually more significant than Queen Elizabeth I herself when it came to the actual formation of policy and the management of Tudor officials in Ireland. Elizabeth had the last say in terms of what would actually happen, but in terms of the practical management of policy, Cecil and some other figures who I will go into in a minute, were the actual individuals who formed policy, who received ideas from officials within Ireland and who dictated how the country should be ruled. So 
the purpose of this paper, I suppose, is to actually provide some greater insight into how Cecil actually conceived of his Irish policy. Cecil never visited Ireland in the exact same way as the vast majority of English officials never actually went to Ireland, had no direct experience of the country. His knowledge of the country was based around the documents that he received in London. Okay, so there's an awful lot of different documents that you could look at in terms of regular correspondence, fiscal reports, all of the rest of it, memoranda, but what I'm going to kind of try and concentrate on here is the reform treatises which Cecil received and how those informed his perception of Ireland and how he responded accordingly. So in terms of how these or what these reform treatises were, um, these are effectively the early modern equivalent of policy papers. So some of them were about religious reform, some of them were about um, military garrisons, some of them were about economic reform, all of the rest of it. And some of them mixed in the vast majority of all of those things. Some of them were about colonization. And they were sent over to London by various figures, some of them in the administration in Dublin, some of them um, from the provincial governments in Munster and Connacht after a certain point, and some of them from individuals who we know very, very little about. But the idea was that they were trying to effectively influence policy as it was actually sent over to Dublin for them to uh, implement within the country. And in terms of how they would reform Ireland, reform being a very ambiguous word in terms of whether it meant uh, conquest or whether it meant something very, very benign. Um, it could mean either or. Some of the time it could mean something was quite benign. Some of the time reform was essentially just another way of saying conquest. Okay, so there were over 600 of these composed during the 16th century. And over two thirds of these date to the reign of Elizabeth I. So they're significant in terms of shaping how Irish policy was actually formed. When I say that there was about two thirds of them that were actually sent during the reign of Elizabeth I, half of those were sent between 1594 and 1603 during the Nine Years' War because there was a military emergency and it became the center of Elizabethan um, political concerns, effectively. Now, the issue that and kind of what I wanted to actually talk about changed as I was kind of preparing this. Um, I was kind of going to go through um, effectively a, a synopsis of kind of things that, that Cecil was consulted about and what those treatises were concerned with. But what I started to notice as I was going through it, through it is that there is something that can be revealed in terms of what the actual traffic of these treatises, what it reveals 
So Kieran has mentioned the fact that the state papers, Ireland, that the vast majority of them uh, are, are of the documentation for Elizabethan Ireland is contained in the state papers, Ireland. But there are, I would argue, kind of certain specifics in terms of uh, where those documents were actually sent in the second half of the 16th century. Curiously enough, Cecil seems to, as much as there is correspondence from Ireland contained in the Cecil papers, I would argue that where Cecil received treatises, a large proportion of these did not end up in Hatfield House. They ended up in the state paper archives because an awful lot of those documents and even ones that are addressed to the Privy Council have Cecil's uh, very idiosyncratic uh, scroll on the margin or on the flyleaf as an endorsement. So it seems to my mind fairly clear that, that Cecil was receiving these um, himself. And for some reason, which remains supposed to be explained, I haven't explained it yet, um, ended up in the state paper archive as opposed to ending up in Hatfield. And that's different from certain other ministers, say, if you take um, uh, Walsingham or, or certain other ministers, where they actually retained the papers that they had received and they ended up in their own personal archives. In particular, Walsingham, we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, so in terms of what this traffic of treatises reveals, the major argument which I kind of want to employ here is the idea that Cecil, and again, this is this is something that Kieran uh, flagged 30 years ago, is that basically at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, there is something of a, um, a conflict within the Elizabethan government between Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester, and Cecil in terms of the dominance of Irish policy. So there are a large degree of treatises that are actually arriving to Leicester and to Cecil. Uh, more to Cecil than to Dudley, but there is something of a, a kind of a duel between the two. But where I think that the actual shift in this occurs is somewhere around the mid 1560s, when Cecil becomes the dominant individual within Irish policy. And this continues for largely 10 years. Um, goes on pretty much up until 1575. Now, where the historiography has kind of shifted in terms of, um, or what it's largely kind of concentrated on, is the idea that there's a parity that develops in 1573 between Sir Francis Walsingham, who is appointed as the English Secretary of State, as the kind of successor to Cecil in that office, and Cecil moves over to the head of the Exchequer as Lord Treasurer. And that in 1573, this 
duality kind of begins between Cecil and Walton. But what I want to try and argue here is that it actually, the, the shift occurs in the summer and the late or early autumn of 1575. And then what happens is Walsingham actually becomes more of the dominant figure in terms of where treatises are being received in London and where correspondence is going in London. And then that maintains itself up until 1583, 1584. And the argument here is that what happens is Cecil in the mid-1560s had banked on the idea that he had started to receive treatises from Ireland that were all advocating the idea of if you can plant colonies in particular regions, you can control the country after a certain point, and in particular in South Munster and in Northeast Ulster. So Cecil, by about, these have been received from say Thomas Radcliffe, the Earl of Sussex, and certain key figures within Ireland, like William Pears and other officials in Northeast Ulster. And Cecil adopted the policy. And as I would see it, he effectively starts to direct Elizabethan policy towards that by 1567. And um, it becomes a policy which incrementally increases throughout the late 1560s and early, into the early 1570s. And there's increasing amounts of money diverted from the Elizabethan Exchequer into actually doing this. Um, the Secretary of State in Ireland, uh, Sir Thomas Smith is <coughs> deployed to try and colonize the Ords Peninsula in East County Down. And then, Cecil becomes the individual who actually convinces Sir Walter Devereux, the first Earl of Essex, to implement a colonization strategy, which is meant to colonize the entirety of the county of Antrim and a section of North County Down, which ends up costing the crown tens of thousands of pounds. It's meant to be a, a semi-private plantation but it ends up costing the Elizabethan state somewhere in the region of 70 to 80,000 pounds, which is just tens of millions in terms of um, modern perceptions of these things. So in terms of what the impact of that is, I would argue that basically, what happens is it isn't that Cecil becomes the less important figure within Irish policy when Walsingham becomes the Secretary of State in late 1573. If you actually look at the documentation and how it's being received in London, um, there's Cecil is still receiving a large proportion of it in 1574 and into 1575. Where it completely drops off is in the summer and the autumn of 1575, when the enterprise is cancelled effectively by Elizabeth. Now, I haven't come across 
any documentation that will actually reveal this directly. And maybe Kiron or, or somebody can um, offer up support of it. Possibly that you will. But, um, but what happens is from late 1575, Cecil's influence over policy and the receipt of documentation from Ireland starts to drop off dramatically. So say in the first two months of 1575, Cecil writes at least six memoranda that are in the state papers. And if you're to go forward to say a year later, he's much more disengaged from policy. Walsingham becomes the central character. And when he becomes the central character, he retains that position for somewhere in the region of, I would argue about eight, nine years. So where Cecil has kind of had a dominance over policy between 1565, 1566, up to 1575, he is in that position because he's trusted by Elizabeth in order to actually dictate Irish policy. But he is damaged by the fact that the policies that he's introduced in terms of how you can actually reduce Ulster, the crown rule, um, they don't work and it's cost tens of thousands of pounds and it's destroyed one of the uh, noble houses of England in terms of their actual estate, which has implications going forward into the late Elizabethan period in terms of Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex. Devereux rebels at the very end of Elizabeth's reign. Part of it is to do with the fiscal um, problems that he's facing, and some of those are largely inherited from his father and his father's escapades in Ireland. So, again, I would say Cecil is damaged by this. So, Walsingham, from the autumn of 1575, begins to become the dominant individual within Irish policy. Evidence for this would seem to be provided by the fact that when there is a fiscal and a constitutional crisis which arises in Ireland from late 1576 onwards, um, in terms of cess and the composition for cess, the direction of pretty much every single piece of, of major correspondence concerning that is towards Walsingham. There are large, there are significant proportions of copied documents that are sent to Cecil. But what's surprising about this is that Walsingham um, is a Secretary of State, but Cecil is a Lord Treasurer. Now you would think that if you have a fiscal um, policy issue within Ireland, well then, then that should be sent to the Lord Treasurer in England. It's an exchequer matter, all the rest of it. But that isn't the case. The vast majority of the documentation between 1576 and 1579 is sent to either Walsingham 
or within Ireland is sent to Sir William Gerard, the Lord Chancellor. So again, this kind of suggests the idea that Walsingham has become kind of more of the influential figure on Irish policy at Whitehall than Cecil had been in the past. So, in terms of where the actual parity begins to, uh, to be re-established between the two figures. So, if you look at the direction of treatises, say in the late 1570s and the early 1580s, the vast majority of them are still going to Walsingham. And, and that maintains itself throughout the course of the Desmond Rebellion. But where it shifts is in the early 1580s and into the mid 1580s. So what happens here is that, again, as it's an argument, it, it may not be comprehensively proved, but what happens is that, to my mind, Walsingham is additionally damaged by the fact that he has had control of Irish policy to a certain extent in the late 1570s into the early 1580s. And what's happened after a certain point is those rebellions have broken out all over Ireland, cost the Exchequer huge amounts of money, the largest army that has ever been assembled in 16th century Ireland has to be sent over in order to actually suppress the Desmond Rebellion in Munster and other rebellions within the south part of the Pale and also Turlick is trying to come down south into the northern part of the Pale to exploit the situation. So Walsingham's policy has also proved to be something of a failure. And again, this seems to change the direction of policy documents and where the traffic of correspondence is actually going. So by 1583, 1584, and this might actually kind of feed into the idea of not faction, but um, what I would kind of call control of patronage, or, you know, it's not faction, but it's um, kind of, a more subtle form of uh, power that can be exercised is that Walsingham is trying to express the idea that um, of what he's trying to do with the military hardliners in terms of uh, certain officials that are appointed towards the provinces. But Burley is trying to control other individuals and is becoming an individual who has more parity in terms of policy direction. So I'll focus on one particular individual, and I think that this is actually, um, it, it, it evinces a kind of a change of interest in terms of what Borley is actually trying to do in Irish policy between say the 1580s and the 1590s, as opposed to say the 1560s and the 1570s. So, he effectively has 
a more aggressive policy, I think, towards Ireland in the 1560s and 1570s. There's a belief that colonization and, and military policies can actually work. Whereas when Cecil comes back in, I think in the mid 1580s, he is more concerned about issues to do with the actual administration within Ireland and what those reveal about Ireland and also towards reforming the Exchequer. So, I'll focus on just one individual. So Robert Legg is an individual who was sent over by Burley over to Ireland in 1584. He probably arrived over with Sir John Parrish as uh, Parrish was becoming Viceroy of Ireland in 1584. Legg had been sent over basically out of the Exchequer offices in, in London, where he had been working under the Exchequer officials since the late 1560s. He was highly trained, and Burley had specifically requested that he be sent over in order to reform the Exchequer offices in Dublin. So what's curious about this is in terms of Burley is now moving away from, and this would be kind of symptomatic of the vast majority of um, treatises that he's receiving. He's more concerned about official corruption in Ireland as opposed to um, the kind of wider sort of military and colonial interests that are actually going on in the country. He's more concerned about the administration of Dublin and what it reveals about Irish policy and how he can reform it in order to make Ireland pay for itself. So Legg is sent over and he is eventually appointed as the deputy to the chief remembrancer of the Irish Exchequer shortly after arriving to Ireland. So this wasn't the first time Burley had attempted to put a point man in place in Dublin to undertake extensive reforms. So at the start of the 1570s, he had appointed John Simcott as a remembrancer there too. And although he had made some good headway, Simcott eventually abandoned his task in the mid 1570s, having been frustrated in his efforts to accomplish anything by obstructionist officials. And again, I think that would possibly feed into the idea that the reason why there isn't somebody appointed between 1575 up to 1583, 1584 is that Walsingham is gradually taking a more um, significant role within the actual governance of Ireland. So Legg was nothing if not zealous in his efforts. Between 1584 and 1593, he composed over two dozen treatises half of which are unfortunately lost. Those that have survived paint a, a striking picture of the Irish administration in the middle Elizabethan period, one in which figures such as the Lord Chancellor and Archbishop of Dublin, Adam Loftus, was operating numerous schemes to embezzle thousands of pounds from the Elizabethan state in Ireland. 
Blake had uncovered the details of all of this by 1586 and related it extensively to Burley. So in terms of documentation, this is his breviate from 1593, it's a cover page. It's the most extensive um, assessment of a Lord Deputy's reign written in the uh, 16th century. It got a, a four-line entry in the original calendar of state papers back in the late 19th century. Lake had uncovered the detail of, sorry, Walsingham and others in a series of discourses and books, which he composed throughout the second half of the 1580s. Then, in the extremely extensive breviate, which he wrote in 1593 on the administration of William, Lake effectively dissected the Irish administration providing precise details on how dozens of senior and mid-ranking officials in Ireland had stolen and embezzled vast sums of money. It adds up at the end of it to somewhere in the region of about 27 or 28,000 pounds. Um, the vast majority of which was either stolen by Fitzwilliam or uh, Adam Loftus. In doing so, they created social and political chaos alienating the Irish of regions of Southern Ulster and the Old English of the Pale. In the process, Leg was identifying incendiary behaviour, which must have accelerated the drift to war in Ulster. And indeed, an awful lot of the things which he actually flags um, later when there was investigations in terms of 1597 and 1598, how the war had occurred, they actually cited an awful lot of the things that Leg had already flagged in 1593. So the response to Lake's treatises and reform efforts on Burley's part is revelatory of the contradictions inherent in the attitude of the most significant statement, statesman of Elizabeth I's reign and how he approached Ireland and Irish policy. So on two occasions in 1589 and again in 1591, Lake was removed from his position within Ireland by Fitzwilliam and he had to go over London in order to actually petition for himself to be reinstated. Now on the first occasion, Lake goes over and there is a document which is sent over to Fitzwilliam and his government in Dublin, which explicitly states, Robert Lake is a very um, effective official and he should be reinstated immediately and we shouldn't really hear anything about this again in London unless there is proper grounds in order to actually remove him from his position. He does the same thing in 1591 when he is again removed from office. But the problem in 1591 is that when he gets back to Dublin, Fitzwilliam just refuses to actually implement the particular order that he has received from London. Now, the issue here is that the second point at which he tries to be reinstated points towards the limitations of Barley's commitment towards rooting out reform or corruption in London or in Ireland, sorry, um, in the late Elizabethan period. So 
leg because he isn't reinstated by Fitzwilliam after his second visit to London in 1591 and into 1592, goes back over to London in early 1593. <coughs> and he presents this document and somewhere in the region of about six or seven of the treatises, which conveniently were lost. And these point towards the limitation of Barley's commitment to these efforts. And this latter treatises, or treatise complete, presented completely damning information on Fitzwilliam. Rev revelations which suggested his administration had stolen not just thousands, but tens of thousands of pounds. And Barley balked at, the at supporting Leg. Fitzwilliam, after all, was Barley's near cousin through Cecil's marriage to Mildred Cook, Fitzwilliam's first cousin. Consequently, Leg was silenced as soon as the Breviate appeared in London in the early summer of 1593. He suddenly vanishes from the historical record just weeks later, and then there's a document that Fitzwilliam sends over to Barley, thanking him for helping him in his recent struggles. So finally, perhaps the treatises which Burley received on Ireland over a 40-year period can perhaps provide some insight into what Cecil's own attitude towards Ireland and the people who lived there might be. This is often difficult to decipher, particularly so when one is looking at military tracks, which contain lists of garrison sites and the pro proposed number of men who should be stationed at each. But certain treatises which Cecil received do provide a, win a window into his outlook, none more so than the writings which Barley received from the Irish master of the roads, Sir Nicholas White, personal friend of Cecil's. So White had been over to London on several occasions, and they maintained a correspondence over a period of nearly 25 years. So White composed a letter track to Cecil in which he bemoaned the over-militarization of Ireland and the conduct of the garrisons there. In this, he was echoing a strand of political thought in Ireland, which was especially prominent amongst the old English community, which White belonged to. What was needed, White argued, was fair dealing on the part of resident administrators and a functioning effective court system so that all could feel that the Queen offered justice to the subjects of her second kingdom. It is revelatory of Barley's own outlook by the 1580s, and a close confidant of his would express these sentiments to him in a letter tract composed in the midst of a series of major rebellions in Ireland. So this was composed in late 1581. It's kind of an inflammatory thing to actually write to the Senior, one of the senior administrators of the entire Elizabethan government to say, oh, well, we shouldn't uh, actually have such a, a, a garrison presence within Ireland in the context of a war. So all of this is not to suggest that Burley was exclusively concerned with issues of colonization and corruption between the 1560s and the 1580s. He wasn't. His range of concerns was very wide and included religious, social, financial, cartographic, and military affairs in Ireland, among others. 
but he had particularly prominent concerns at different times, such as colonization, composition, and corruption. And when he did, he devised particular approaches to these. For the most part, he didn't conceive of these policies himself. They were proposed to him by figures that had been to and indeed lived in Ireland. He knew the country well, and who then solicited Cecil with their ideas in the shape of treatises and in other mediums such as regular correspondence and memorandum. In adopting some of these ideas as policies, which the Elizabethan state eventually implemented in Ireland and which significantly shaped the history of the island in early modern times, Cecil's involvement with Ireland highlights the centrality of the Irish portfolio in shaping the Queen's ministers, how they decided on, our, on public policy for Ireland in the second half of the 16th century. Yet ultimately, the policies which Cecil devised in response to these treatises and the other sources of inf information which he had available to him were both strikingly inconsistent and unsuccessful. Cecil's colonization strategy failed entirely in the 1570s. Ireland was never made to pay for itself. An excessive corruption of the kind which would not have been tolerated in England remained endemic in Ireland well beyond Burley's lifetime. In this sense, Burley's Irish policy was symptomatic of Tudor policy for the country in the broader sense. The successful colonization and incorporation of the country into the nascent British state in the, in the early 17th century came to pass at the end of a spectacular run of failed policies. is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.